today we're going to tell you a dark and scary story. It may be just after the holidays, but we're going to take you back to Halloween. Spooky. It's a frightening tall tale where misinformation is rife and the truth is as terrifying as an episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? (laughs) With as many plot twists as an episode of Goosebumps. Today we're going to take a deep dive into the white hot viral upper respiratory infection of the season. Influenza. What do you think we were going to say? Coronavirus? (laughs) Get out of here. After all, we did promise to have a follow-up from our last flu episode, and flu season is in full swing. And this one is turning into a bit of a doozy. Unlike previous years, flu B is as common as flu A this year, making up the majority of cases so far. And CDC data suggests that there was an earlier start to this year's flu season than previously. So hopefully you got your flu vaccine since listening to our last episode. But now it's time to get into what do you do once your patient gets the flu? The recommendations are new. They were released in 2018, so basically hot off the press. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) For those of you that are holding on to that 48-hour rule about starting oseltamivir, hold your horses. (laughs) Let's take a deep dive to keep you up to date. Here's what we're going to cover today. We'll start off by figuring out whether the person you're seeing really has the flu. We're going to nerd out about things like the diagnostic odds ratio to help tease apart which symptoms are more predictive of the flu. From there, we're going to review how good diagnostic tests are for the flu and how they can guide our pretest probability. Next, we're going to cover what medications we have for the flu and whether to use them, specifically in the inpatient and the outpatient settings. Chief among these medications are the neuraminidase inhibitors, sometimes called NIs or NAIs. You might hear us say NAI on occasion during this episode. Back to the learning points, though. Remember, these are new guidelines, so we're going to cover how and why they've changed and how reliable the evidence supporting this is. Welcome to Mind the Gap. I'm Janine Knudsen. And I'm Steve Liu. We'd like to thank Dr. Denise McCullough, ID Fellow at the University of Washington, and Dr. Jen Spicer, an Assistant Professor of Infectious Disease at Emory University, for peer-reviewing this episode. The other night I was, you know, just watching Downton Abbey because that's what I do. <laughs> and it happened to be the Christmas episode where Matthew's fiance Lavinia, who we all know, dies of the Spanish flu. I didn't know you were that into English melodrama. I can't help it. Buried pieces are my weakness, Janine. <laughs> so I couldn't help but notice that the doc in the show goes around diagnosing people left and right with the flu. What's wrong with that? Well, so, but how does he know they have the flu? It's not like they had PCR back then. Oh my God, Steve, what a stickler. And also, we digress, Steve. Okay, okay. Let's get back to the flu. How were they diagnosing it? Let's start with diagnoses and roll back to the 19th century, even though we told you we weren't going to go back that far. (laughs) So back then, they relied purely on symptoms to diagnose the flu. Here's a classic description from our last episode. Quote, the most striking symptoms are sudden onset with chills, severe headache with pain in limbs and general malaise. The maximum temperature was 103 to 104. Many cases developed a cough, harsh in nature, with a thick sputum. That sounds like literally any upper respiratory infection I've ever had. (laughs) But it's not that different from the IDSA guidelines. In fact, they list pretty similar symptoms. So do some of these symptoms predict the flu better than others? Some do, mainly fever and cough. And how good are they, Steve? Well, the answer is not really, but <laughs> let me explain. Oh, no. Are you going to talk statistics? Everybody wants to, Janine. <laughs> like positive predictive values? That's what the cool kids do. <laughs> Stats are unavoidable when you're talking about diagnostics. 
Kind of. But today we're going to skip over positive predictive values. Why is that? Because PPVs, as they're called by those in the know, are dependent on disease prevalence. And we want to know how predictive symptoms are, regardless of prevalence. Exactly. And remember, a positive likelihood ratio should be greater than one to help with your diagnosis. Really good likelihood ratios are usually five or above. And a negative likelihood ratio should be between one and zero. A likelihood ratio of 0.5 is fine, but 0.2 and below are better. So fever that we were just talking about carries a positive likelihood ratio of around two for flu. And cough has a negative likelihood ratio of around 0.5. That doesn't sound that great. (laughs) It's not. It's not. (laughs) Is that the best we got? Unfortunately, yes. And this data comes from my favorite series, the JAMA Rational Clinical (laughs) Exam Series. I read it before I go to sleep. (laughs) I believe that. (laughs) Well, looking at that, if you have fever, cough, and acute onset, your positive likelihood ratio goes up to 5.4. Still not that great. But the highlight of that article is that sneezing has a negative likelihood ratio of 0.47. I'm totally adding that to my review of systems. (laughs) Okay, well, that article also brings up something called a diagnostic odds ratio. My favorite. Janine, I think we all know I'm a simple guy. And sometimes it's nice to only have one number to describe the accuracy of a test rather than trying to figure out two things at once. The diagnostic odds ratio divides the positive likelihood ratio and the negative likelihood ratio into, you know, a ratio. That's nice, Steve. In layperson language, the diagnostic odds ratio gives you the odds of having the symptom among individuals with disease compared to the odds of having the symptom among those without disease. And just like a likelihood ratio, the higher the number, the better the test. If you end up close to one, your test isn't that great. And numbers between zero and one suggest that you're just not asking the right question. (laughs) Now back to flu. From the JAMA Rational Clinical Exam article, fever has a diagnostic odds ratio of 4.5. For cough, it's a little lower at 2.8. So what do we do with that? Clearly not everyone with the fever has the flu. For sure. So all the stats we just covered are a way of thinking about the fundamental principles of Bayesian probability. (laughs) My favorite. (laughs) When we say that we're trying to rule something in or out, what we actually mean is that using Bayesian logic, we're trying to either increase or decrease the probability that we think a patient has a diagnosis. So before you apply your diagnostic test, you have to define your pretest probability. And that's influenced by a bunch of stuff, like the prevalence of the flu this year, whether the patient was exposed to people with the flu, or maybe if they're immunocompromised. Then you apply your test, in this case, checking a patient's temperature or asking if they have a cough. And based on your positive likelihood ratio for that test, you get a post-test probability. If your test isn't that good, then your post-test probability may not be much different. So your test hasn't helped you that much. And that's what we're seeing with general flu symptoms. Exactly. If your pretest probability is high, it may not matter too much. But if your pretest probability is medium to low, you may want to do additional testing. Now, what additional testing, you may ask? Well, so there's three ways to detect influenza. There's either using DNA amplification, aka PCR, antigen detection, or cultures. We rarely use viral cultures because they take a long time. The antigen test is okay, but PCR is effectively the gold standard for diagnosis of influenza. It has the highest sensitivity and specificity. In fact, the latest IDSA guidelines recommend the PCR over the antigen test in all situations. We'll explain why. While PCR and antigen testing have the same high specificity, antigen testing is much less sensitive. So it's not great in populations where it would be bad to miss the flu, like sick, hospitalized patients. 
Another way to say this is that PCR has a higher positive likelihood ratio compared to antigen testing. So putting it all together, even though both tests have the same specificity, the improved sensitivity of PCR doubles the odds in favor of a diagnosis. And tying this back to our explanation of diagnostic odds ratios, if we calculate it for PCR, it's really high. It sits near 100. And that's so much higher than fever and cough, where if you remember, the DOR was more in the 5 range. But again, likelihood ratios are meant to help you get from a pre test probability to a post-test probability. So you can decide whether or not to, say, treat your patient for flu. Bringing us back to reality, Steve. My specialty. (laughs) And that depends on the prevalence of flu in your population. After all, if there's no flu around you, the PCR test may be giving you a false positive. Likewise, when flu is super common, like now, a negative result might just be a false negative, which could either be the test itself or something like poor collection technique. So with that caveat in mind, who does the IDSA recommend testing? And hospitalized patients, pretty much everybody should be tested. And when we say all patients, we mean all patients. All patients. (laughs) This includes obvious cases, like people coming in with acute respiratory illness with or without fever. To less obvious cases, like people coming in with worsening dyspnea from COPD or heart failure, or even just people who are immunosuppressed. And what about the outpatient world? What do you do? Test everybody with acute respiratory symptoms? Not exactly. Only if the test changes clinical management. There are some cases where it would be reasonable to treat empirically for the flu, like if your pretest probability is really high or your patient is really sick. And some cases where you wouldn't treat even if they have it, like if they're just not that sick. And when we say treatment, it's not just Tamiflu, aka Oseltamivir, anymore. There are now a number of other neuraminidase inhibitors, like Paramivir, Zanamivir, and possibly hitting pharmacies near you, Lenanimivir. I should get a prize for that First one. Try. <laughs> well done. The formulations are oral, nasal, or IV. And in 2018, the FDA approved a new one called Biloxivir, which is a cap-dependent endonuclease inhibitor. I totally understood what that meant. A novel mechanism (laughs) for anti-influenza medications. Another thing that's changed with the new flu guidelines is when to treat. Remember that 48-hour cutoff? You mean if their symptoms started more than 48 hours ago, it's not worth starting treatment? Well, you can still use that rule if someone is outpatient and not that sick. But otherwise, the IDSA recommends that all people who are hospitalized with suspected or proven flu should be treated with antiviral treatment as soon as possible regardless of when flu symptoms started. And all outpatients with severe or progressive illness or at high risk from developing complications should be started on antivirals. We're talking anyone with a chronic medical problem, like say COPD or heart failure, or if they have an immunocompromised state. Also, folks over the age of 65, infants younger than two, and pregnant women up until two weeks postpartum. Remember, that's irrespective of vaccination history. And you should consider treating people who will be near other folks that are high risk for complications. So, basically everyone. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I want to say yes, but no. They definitely broaden their treatment recommendations, but it's still not everyone. Well, the guideline to treat all inpatients with suspected flu is a pretty big change. Okay, I see your inpatient bias, Steve. Yeah, I'm a hospitalist. (laughs) I have no follow-up to that. (laughs) You can say primary care is important, too. Primary care was my favorite thing in residency. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, you're right. The old 2009 guidelines used to say that for admitted patients, you should only start medication after the 48-hour cutoff if it's proven with testing. So we are a lot more liberal with treatment now. And to explain what happened, we're going to do another historical dive. 
This one inspired by an amazing collaboration between the BMJ and Cochrane to uncover previously hidden flu treatment data. This is the nefarious story we were referring to at the start of this episode. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and the title of that article is so good. Multi-System Failure, the story of anti-influenza drugs. This dark story takes us back to 1999, when the first nerminidase inhibitors were approved, Ocetelmavir and Zanamavir. Initial data suggested that those antivirals were effective at reducing the duration of symptoms by a whole 24 hours. Wow. What a big deal at the time. They also thought these drugs might reduce the risk of complications and hospitalization. A 2005 Cochrane review suggested that the use of NAIs decreased the risk of bronchitis and pneumonia, going so far to say that in the case of a serious localized confirmed epidemic, NAIs could be used to prevent serious complications. A thumbs up from the Cochrane review is a pretty big deal. It was this data and other papers that led to oseltamivir and zanemavir being stockpiled prior to the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. But just as the 2009 pandemic was about to hit, a new Cochrane review came out questioning these results, saying, Newsflash! Neuraminidase inhibitors might be regarded as optional. Paucity of good data has undermined previous findings for Ocetelmavir's prevention of complications from influenza. Dun, 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 dun. The folks at Cochrane were particularly concerned because some of the most promising data supporting the use of oseltamivir had come under suspicion. Roche, the manufacturer of oseltamivir, had refused to share their study data publicly, as is normally required, and they were wishy-washy about their results. To make matters worse, the Cochrane group read up on files from the FDA on Zanamivir, which suggested that the drug was approved not because of its superior performance, but because it offered an alternative therapeutic approach for an important public health problem in a market where current influenza treatment options were limited. <laughs> womp womp. So it wasn't actually better. It was just like the only option. That's all you had. That's all we still have. <laughs> thousands on thousands of people were treated with these drugs during the 2009 pandemic. <laughs> and we're just scratching the surface. Check out our show notes for some fascinating reviews on what this whole scandal meant for the pharmaceutical industry. A widely used drug clouded by potential misinformation or at least a lack of information from a global pharmaceutical company. It's almost a bad Hollywood movie. I kind of feel like a conspiracy theorist right now. <laughs> you sound like one. <laughs> well, things from here did take a turn towards the unexpected. Things get worse? No. Following the 2009 pandemic, they actually got better. Multiple large meta-analyses actually showed a mortality benefit. Ah, uh, my movie, Janine. <laughs> and not just any kind of benefit. There were large trials suggesting effects of up to a 75% reduction in mortality with taking an NAI, with reductions in complications and hospitalizations as well. That's shocking. And while the outcomes were better when treatment was started early, the benefits of the antivirals were still present, even if the start was after 48 hours of symptoms. So the drugs were better than we thought after all. And this is why the IDSA guidelines changed so much from 2009 to 2018 to recommend broader treatment. That said, this data is not without its critiques. There you go, Steve. Doing it again. <laughs> I'm a naysayer. <laughs> most, most importantly, all the new data is observational. None of it comes from RCTs, especially for sick inpatients. Remember, this data is coming from the heart of the 2009 pandemic, when folks were desperate to treat people. So they weren't exactly lining up to design randomized controlled trials. Fair enough. And the observational trials were mainly just at risk of the usual types of bias present in these kinds of case control studies. One example of this is immortality bias. In the case of flu treatment, this bias highlights the fact that in order to make it into the case group, you must have survived until the time where the flu was detected, and then it was decided to include you in the study. When you adjust for this bias, the effects of NAIs may be less profound. We're not bringing this up to shake your faith in treating folks with NAIs. 
but rather to highlight that this has been a contentious debate for some time. And that's kind of the point of the segment, right? There are times that the things that we accept as true may not have as firm a grounding as what we would like to say. But remember, the fact is that in spite of imperfect data for NAIs, the recommendation for treating sick and vulnerable patients with them is pretty strong. And although it's an imperfect medication, so far it's the best widely available drug that we have for patients, particularly for groups at high risk for morbidity and mortality from the flu. And with that, it's a wrap. (laughs) Let's summarize, Steve. First of all, there are many flu symptoms, and most of them are not very helpful in confirming a case of the flu. They have poor diagnostic odds ratios, which is defined as the ratio of the positive likelihood ratio over the negative likelihood ratio. Our lesson two is that to really confirm a case, the IDSA recommends a flu PCR. Less good is the antigen test. Only use that if you have no other options. Number three, the flu PCR can still have false positives. As with any test, you should apply it to your pretest probability, a number you come up with based on your local context, to get your post-test probability, the chance a patient truly has a disease. But new flu guidelines have looser recommendations about who to treat. They basically recommend treating any inpatient who has suspected flu, even without a confirmatory test, and even if they've had symptoms for at least 48 hours. You treat with neuraminidase inhibitors, which originally were thought to decrease symptoms by a day and reduce complications and hospitalizations. But as the big pharmaceutical scandal revealed, this data was not completely accurate and ultimately not as convincing as originally thought. But on a positive note, data from the 2009 flu pandemic, where they treated everybody, actually produced data supporting mortality benefits. So better than we originally thought. The data wasn't great quality, though. Lots of observational studies and no RCTs. But those results were surprising and impressive. So for now, we're going with NAIs may save lives after all. But that's why we're here, to gossip about scandals and help you process the data for yourself. So we know that we went kind of quickly through the data. And arguably not as in-depth as some might like. So as always, we want to encourage you to check out the data too. Take a look at the links below the podcast at coreimpodcast.com. So you can take the time to judge the data for yourself and sound smart on rounds. Super smart. Super smart. (laughs) After all, this is a podcast talking about those gaps in our knowledge. So if you really want to feel confident on the data, take the time to pick it apart yourself. And if there are any other topics you'd like to hear discussed, please let us know. I'm Steve Liu. And I'm Janine Knudsen. And remember, mind the gap. Thanks for listening. Janine and I are assistant professors in the Department of General Internal Medicine at NYU. Opinions in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of NYU or other affiliated institutions. Please don't use this podcast for medical advice, but instead consult with your healthcare provider. No, following the 2009 pandemic, they actually got better. Huh? No, no, they actually got better. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) This steak has more ham than a Christmas dinner. (laughs) That was good. No, they actually got better.